Good to be with you this morning. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning in your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 49. My name's Chip Bugner. I serve here on the global team as your global pastor, and Matt's sharing this moment with me, and I appreciate it, and we're going to dive into his word together. Let me pray as you make your way to Isaiah 49 for our time. Father, we praise you that Jesus is so worthy that we need to make haste to give him law, to give him glory. We thank you that we can hail him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for what you accomplished through him. Lord, if we're weary saints this morning in this room, I pray you would refresh them with the good news of who he is. And for those who don't know you in this room, who are our friends here, we just pray you would draw them powerfully to Christ this morning. Encourage us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's gift-giving season, right? If, it's, if that's too late, Amazon Prime is still available. Uh, but Dennis Blythe asked us this week at a staff meeting to share around our tables one Christmas gift that we all remember. And I wonder what you would say you would bring up to that table if you were at that table that morning. Beyond the gift itself, I bet something... In, sticks in your mind about that moment. Something about the generosity and thoughtfulness of the giver blended with your desire or your need in such a way that led to mutual joy and satisfaction and just left a permanent impression on your mind. But I wonder also, on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, if you've ever been particularly disappointed by a gift or a lack of a gift. When we lived overseas, our family members would send big packages, and so they'd come via the postal service, and, but we would have to wait for our family members to be uh, ready. We were seven hours time difference, and so we would wait to video chat them in so that they could participate in that kind of mutual joy of giver and receiver, both being satisfied in the gifts that's given. But for some of our friends, some of our teammates, this backfired one Christmas. The kids have been sent a big package from their aunt and they start digging in, they're FaceTiming, and uh, the, the, the youngest one's up. His, his name was Jackson, he was five, and he had a particular knack for sharing what was on his heart, <laughs> no matter what was on his heart. Um, so he digs into this wrapped gift, and out he pulls a pair of socks. Now, we could talk about socks, whether that was appropriate or not, but uh, his expression immediately changed. He held up the pair of the socks to the camera and he stomps his foot and he looks at the camera and he says, exactly what I didn't want. And he walks out of the room. I mean, that's when you hope like the internet shut down, right? That's when you hope you just change the subject, flip the camera. But I love the clarity, a five-year-old, exactly. He knew with clarity what he wanted. And that poor aunt, right? Thankfully, she had sent other gifts to, make it, to mitigate the, the disappointment at that moment. But think of that moment. It reveals somewhat of a tension of gift giving that we all face. A five-year-old with certainty, right, absolute certainty, knows exactly what he wants. But it may not be what he needs. An aunt from afar can't know exactly what he wants but thinks she knows what he needs. And what happened? Disappointment was the result. It was epic fail. When we open our Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, we find the people of Israel stomping their feet at their creator God. And right here in Isaiah 49, we're going to read it in a minute, but you hear them over and over throughout the book of Isaiah saying exactly what we didn't want, God. 
They assume to know exactly what they need and what they want, but it happens to be the exact opposite of what God desires for them and what God decided was best for them. So he sends hope. They say, nope. He sends hardship with foreign powers. Even Assyria and the threat of Babylon loom over the book and they stomp their feet and run from God. Even in our chapter today that is filled with good promises from God. Look in verse 14. Zion or Israel says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. You can just see them holding up the promise and just counting it a a light thing and saying, no, I'm out. Exactly what I didn't want, God. And it reveals the hardness of their hearts. But Israel's problem in Isaiah's day is exactly our problem in our day. Humanity, we really haven't grown up from our five-year-old selves, have we? Sure, we might have more sophisticated ways in how we do it. We might mitigate the disappointment by dispersing in our wealth how many gifts we want to just keep, keep, keep coming. But here's the problem. Our assessment of our needs and our desires have been warped by what the Bible calls sin. And we end up choosing things that cause harm and we self-destruct in the end. The mechanism of our wants, our heart malfunctions over and over and over again. Augustine, the church uh, father, captured this self-destructive tendency when he wrote this prayer to God in his confessions when he said, For what am I to you, to myself, what am I to myself without you, but a guide to my own downfall? We know exactly how to ruin our lives. We forge our own path and it leads to misery. Charles Spurgeon said, we are like the people of Israel when they were content to stay in their bondage. We actually hug the handcuffs that bind us. We love the chains that oppress us. Grace has to step in if our story is going to change. And in Isaiah 49, grace does exactly that. Isaiah 49 is out to pry our hands off of our chains that we've come to love. The chains our independence have created have not produced the freedom they have promised. And God, in his infinite wisdom, knows exactly what we need. And in his abundant generosity has provided even what we want in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49 takes on the challenge of our doubting hearts with one truth. Jesus will never, ever disappoint you. God couldn't have provided anything better than what he wrapped in swaddling clothes in that manger 2,000 years ago. This is the meaning of Christmas. He is the one mediator between God and man. And friends, he is enough. Isaiah 49 gives him the name God's servant or my servant. You're going to hear it over and over and over in this chapter. And when he would become a baby boy hundreds of years later, he would be given the name Jesus. So we're going to read it, but I want to encourage you to stay with me. Don't read ahead because I'm going to stop and orient you. Multiple people are speaking. Multiple perspectives are found on that event in Isaiah 49. But it's a prophecy about Jesus and the impact of his life. And so Jesus begins by holding the microphone and he's going to summon the world to listen because he has something to say to the world. So listen to his perspective on his life. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. 
The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. That's easy to get confused right here. God labels him his servant, but also identifies him as Israel. So at this point, we are to understand that God is singling out someone from within Israel to redeem and restore Israel, not Israel in that day. Because the people had dishonored God to such a degree that he rolls up his sleeves and he provides for his promise. He says, no, now you, my servant, are the true Israel, the new Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I've been dishonored long enough. So he keeps going. The servant keeps holding the microphone. But there's a moment of tension. He was destined for glory, destined to restore a people to God. But it looks like it falls flat. Look in verse 4. But I myself said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. Now the servant's going to keep holding the microphone, but right now he's going to recall some words he's heard from his father, from God the Father. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He keeps recalling what his father has said about him. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One says to one who is despised, to one abhorred by the people, to a servant of rulers. This is the servant, Jesus. Kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, I will answer you in a time of favor and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritances, saying to the prisoners, come out and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways, then their pastures will be on all the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst, the scorching heat or sun will not strike them for their compassionate one. That's Jesus, that's the servant, will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make all my mountains into a road and my highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away, from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinim. And the author grabs the mic for a moment and he says, this is the implication. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Israel in exile grabs the microphone and stomps their feet. Verse 14, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. You kind of hear that tone, exactly what we didn't want. God then takes the microphone back and challenges their unbelief. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. 
Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now watch the series of reversals that the servant is going to unpack for us about this future glory that awaits us. Your builders hurry. Those who destroy and devastate, you will leave you. Look up and look around. They all gather together. They come to you, the nations. As I live, this is the Lord's declaration. You will wear all your children as jewelry and put them on as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and your land marked by ruins will now be indeed too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. Yet as you listen, the children that you have been deprived of will say, this place is too small for me. Make room for me so that I may settle. Then you will say within yourself, who fathered these for me? I I was deprived of my children and unable to conceive, exiled and wandering. But who brought them up? See, I was left by myself, but these, where did they come from? This is what the Lord God says. Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will raise my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered, the servant asked. For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine then all people will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Got work to do. Let's get to work. Look at the big picture with me for a moment. God sought to pry Israel's hands off their false hopes through the exile. But this text really takes us beyond that return from Babylon, which was such a historic moment in the Old Testament, and a greater future that has been promised and provided by Jesus through God's promise to us. But one thread ties the whole chapter together and it centers on verse three when God forcefully and definitively declares that I will be glorified in this servant that he has chosen, Israel. But he wants to be particularly glorified in a unique and peculiar way though. Look at the end of the chapter. The very last stanza, I will be glorified, he says, in the beginning. And at the end, he says, then all people will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. His plan will certainly benefit Israel. His plan will benefit the nations that hear of him and are are exposed to his light and are enveloped by light. But first and foremost, it's not about us. It's about him being known, him being known in a certain way. And echoing through the book of Isaiah is the truth that God is God. And there is no other that can compare to him. He knows the end from the beginning. He declared it so. 
And this means that no one can corner him, no one can, can force his hand. He is altogether sovereign, reigning in absolute freedom to do whatever he pleases. And he, of his own initiative, has decided to be known in a certain way. How? His name is Redeemer. His name is Savior, the Mighty One of Jacob. Back in college, my friends and I went to play basketball at the intramural courts at NC State. And we waited for the long time to get on the most competitive court in the gym. And we finally got on and people are all around. And on the opposing team was this guy. And his name, his nickname was Cricket. I had no idea why until one play. So he's shorter than most basketball players, 5'6", 5'7". My friend and I, my friend's 6'3", I'm about 6 foot. We're going two-on-one, cricket's the only one back on defense. And so I pass it to my friend, good friend that I am, 6'3", West takes it up, left-handed layup, cricket grabs it, cups the ball, and throws it as far as he can, just throws it out. Everybody's going crazy, and cricket looks up at my friend, he's staring right up at him. My friend's taller than him, and he says, and I'll delete some words for this audience, he says, don't you know who I am? We didn't, but we did then, right? Cricket is the perfect nickname for a guy who can jump out of the gym. And God sends Jesus in Isaiah 49 so that people might know who he is. He decided of his own initiative not just to be known as judge. And this is the best news in the world. He decided to be known as redeemer and savior. All will know and will bow to him in the light of this knowledge. This means that he takes on the burden of proving himself to be who he is. And this is such good news. Because it fleshes out in verse 23 like this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. You see, his honor is on the line if we are disappointed in the end with his promises and his provision. He wants to prove his provision to be exactly what you need and even exactly what you want in Jesus. He is a creator. Uh, And Isaiah 49 reveals three reasons why Jesus will not disappoint us on his promise to deliver. Three reasons why Jesus will never disappoint us. Number one, Jesus alone is appointed and approved by God to save. Jesus alone on your outline is appointed and approved by God to save. Jesus recounts his birth and his upbringing in verses 1 and 2, which we read earlier. God had called him before he was born, named him, set him apart, shaped him like an arrow for a specific purpose. He had been set apart with a target in mind to bring God glory by being that mediator between Israel and God, to resolve the conflict between Israel and God. But something didn't match up. He came and his own people rejected him. They stomped their feet and they walked out and they said exactly what we didn't want. They didn't glorify God because of him. He didn't resolve the tension in his earthly life. They mocked him and scorned him. He saw nothing but futility and vanity at the end of his life. He was birthed with a purpose that seemed to fall flat, at least at first. Yet even with this perplexing conclusion, Jesus doesn't wallow in self-pity and divert from the path that the Father had planned. What does he say there at the end of verse 4? Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. 
He knew man could do what they wished to do with his life. But the final chapter was yet to be written and his father held the pen. And man, what a final chapter it turned out to be. God's joy over his servant's accomplishment, Jesus' accomplishment, just bleeds through this passage. Look in verse 5. And now, says the Lord, as he recounts what he's heard from him, who formed me from the servant to be, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. Listen to what he says, verse 6. It's not enough for you to be my servant. Raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So think about the picture. Jesus closes his eyes with no one following him, no friends beside him. And what did he awake to? The Father's absolute pleasure. You did it. You did it. I'm from a small town in North Carolina, and if we were to summarize, I think, what the father's attitude right here, we would, we would say, no, man, no, you didn't, dude. No, you didn't, bro. And I think that's what God is saying. You, you did it. You accomplished the feat. Now, if you read the book of Isaiah, it is a massive feat to reconcile a hard-hearted people like Israel to God. But God says, that's just so small in light of what you've done. It's not enough just to mediate between me and my people, Israel. The world's got to get in on this. The worth of Jesus' accomplishment deserves worldwide acclamation. That's the heart of his father after he beheld his perfect obedience. Jesus' earthly life ended pretty inconsequentially if you're looking with human eyes. But after he was raised, a worldwide movement began. And it's still going on. That's why Birmingham, Alabama, we're sitting here this morning. The ends of the earth became the the end of that arrow that that God was going to shoot through his son. Listen to God's words. It's too small. It's too trivial. Not enough for one people alone. Isn't this the impulse that perfection creates? We see something on our phones that just amazes us. And what's the first button you go to? Share, right? My daughter takes an art class and her teacher is a professional artist in the area. And she told Emma on Friday morning, Emma had been working on this painting for a long time. And she loves it so much. But the thing she does at the end of every painting is she just sits before it for hours and just nitpicks. So she said, don't, don't show me anymore. It's, it's good as it is. Isn't it really hard as an artist to know when to, to put the brush down? But God's not like that here. God doesn't say, Jesus, why didn't you do it this way or... Why didn't you get a hundred? Could you have done it this way? No, he wasn't nitpicking. There was no need to add to the work. It was time to celebrate. Everyone, the ends of the earth, come see what Jesus has accomplished. God declared his servant Jesus to be too glorious to keep to one people. His joy in his son just erupts. I almost entitled this sermon, When One is Enough, One is Not Enough. Meaning, when Jesus accomplished the work of redemption by living a sinless life, by dying the death that we deserve, and by rising on the third day, when he accomplished that, it means he is enough to save. We have one mediator before God. But that means not just one people need to be the target of that news. And we have one mission to get that news, the world in on that news, to get that news out to everybody that needs it, and everyone needs it. God's salvation is big enough to engulf all peoples. 
Have you ever seen Dude Perfect? My boys are really into watching Dude Perfect right now. And Dude Perfect, those guys, friends from Texas and A&M, they made millions on the sole premise that shared joy is contagious, right? So they do something crazy, shoot some shot that goes in that should never go in, and they erupt with joys, and all of a sudden you hear my boys in the living room erupting with joy. Shared joy is contagious, and this is what we're witnessing in this chapter. The shared joy of the Father over the accomplishment of the Son is spilling out into the world. It's not enough, Jesus, just for one. We've got to get all the world in on this. Jesus alone is appointed and approved by God to save. Verse 5, he said it with his own words, I am honored in God's sight. Verse 7, he recounts God's words about how he was chosen. Verse 8, he is the place where God has secured his covenant for all those who would trust in him. God is beaming over the work of his son. Two implications of this are worthy of our consideration Church, if you're a Christian in this room, we have rock-solid assurance that does not depend on us. If you're a Christian in this room, I love this vision of our salvation. God's pleasure in His Son is the rock-solid anchor of our hope. It's not even God's commitment to you. However binding that is to Him, that's the ground of your assurance. It's God's honor of His Son. To betray you, dear Christian... Listen to this, to betray you would be to belittle Jesus. And that's something that is unthinkable to the heart of our Father. For his own sake, he says in Isaiah, for his own sake, he has removed his sins from us. He wants to be known as Savior and Redeemer, and he will be known in that light. So look outside you this morning for your assurance. Secondly, letter B on your outline there. One way means there's only one way. God chooses Jesus alone to save. God appointed him alone to save. God approves of him alone to save. One way means there's only one way. I went to this conference once about 15 years ago where I heard R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul was already starting to decline in his health. And um, he was even more witty and funny. He had just had a stroke the week before and came to this conference and still preached. Um, and so he was just in a unique season. But he was preaching on God's sovereignty and how in him we live and we move and we have our being. How he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he asked this group of pastors and church leaders to respond audibly to a question. So he took his glasses off and he held them up in the air and he said, what is the reason why? What is the reason why if I throw these up in the air, we know that they're not just going to float up and land on the moon someday? And we all, all answered gravity. And then he stared at us. And he said, hmm, in him we live and move and have our being. What he was identifying was that we are functional deists. We think God just wound up the world and it operates on its own apart from his superintending sovereign activities to sustain it. The reason why gravity acts like gravity, he said, is because God is making gravity act like gravity at this moment. But we were inconsistent with what we believed, even what we were hearing. And I wonder if in this room even we're inconsistent in, our, in how we apply this truth Even right now, when we think about how Jesus alone is God's appointed instrument to reconcile us to himself, our actions can betray. We can actually become functional pluralists and think multiple roads will lead to God. We think that people are okay without Christ. So I'm going to ask you a question. Don't want you to respond audibly, but think in your heart for your answer. There are two options, heaven or hell. 
And in light of what we are considering, God appointed and approved of Jesus alone to save. What happens when someone lives their whole life and does not hear the gospel and does not believe in Christ and perishes outside of Christ? The answer, hell. Now sure, we say that with a gulp. We say that with a sense of sorrow and a sense of grief. But that's the answer. There's only one way to heaven through Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to hear and believe in the gospel. You see, God does not share his glory, the the accomplishment of Jesus, the glory of that accomplishment with creation. Romans 1 is clear. The knowledge of God we receive through being created beings and through living on this planet is only enough to condemn but not enough to make us right with him. People perish because everyone on the planet are, were sinners by nature and by choice. No one is innocent. So as you might reply, and I, I struggle with this at times, it seems harsh or unfair. But we have to step back and just realize what, what is fair? Fair would be to let us get what we deserved. Fair would be to be known just as judge, not as savior and redeemer. We have all rebelled against him. So fair is for all of us to perish. Grace ceases to be grace if it's fair. We don't say that with a sense of superiority, friend, if you're new to Christianity. Jonathan from the baptism waters at 9 o'clock service last week said it well when he said, if God hadn't listened and intervened, I don't think I would be here today. We're still shocked. There's a, there's a way. There's a way. He didn't have to provide a way, but he provided one way. We weren't looking for him, and he came and found us. That's the whole point of Christmas. There is one mediator, and the implication for our mission is very clear. If there are multiple mediators, then give yourselves to multiple missions. If there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Christ We have one mission, to get the wonderful news of his accomplishment to all the nations that need to hear. Jesus alone is appointed and proved by God to save. God has chosen in the triumph of his mercy to be magnified in that way. Our need is met by God in Jesus. And the rest of this chapter is out to convince you why Jesus is exactly what you want. So we've seen that God accomplishes what we need in reconciling us to himself through Jesus. But let's look at why Jesus is the kind of leader you want to take you to glory. The second reason why Jesus will not disappoint you is that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. I love the command of verse nine, come out. Prisoners, Come out is what Jesus is saying there. It's an image of a new release, a new exodus, a new way out of the dark dungeon of our sin. He even follows it up with show yourselves. You know that feeling when you leave a matinee, because we can't afford movies anymore, so we go to matinees, right? You know that feeling when you leave the matinee and you, it's directly out, right? You go from darkness, an alternative reality, into light and how it's just disorienting. Following Jesus is the exact opposite, although it's similar in one sense. It's, it's reorienting. When, when you step out into the light, you realize you've been living in a universe that you forged by your own d- 
by your own heart desires and it's led to your ruin and destruction. But when you come out into the light, he's so sufficient to lead you all the way to glory. He says, show yourselves. It's like you've been living upside down and all of a sudden he turns you right side up and you see the world in a new way. Now I would encourage you, if you haven't become a follower of Christ, Jesus is so great you can come out of hiding. He's so great. Come out, show yourselves. You never know how dark the dungeon is until you step into the light. One hymn writer said it this way, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. God's eye, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Where do we follow him to? Do we follow him just like the people of Israel out into a wilderness to perish there? No, no, no. This is a better Moses. Now we are led out to feed. We're led out to, to not thirst but to drink. No obstacles will remain. God removes the mountains and makes them into a road. He, he raises up the road so that the roads themselves are, accomplish a safe journey all the way to glory. We won't perish of hunger or thirst. Jesus is an able leader. He's a compassionate shepherd. Verse 10, for the compassionate one guides them. So think of it, church. Not only is your destination secured, but your journey is secure because he leads you along the path. And he's able to hold you. You know what being under Jesus' leadership means? It means submission to him feels a lot like satisfaction because his heart is so generous. This is critical because at times we'll be like the people of Israel in verse 14 when they said, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. So we'll question and doubt his care. And I love how God just interrupts their rant and says, wait a minute. Verse 15. Uh, let me give you this unlikely scenario to prove how likely my love is. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Unlikely scenario, but sometimes happens in the world, so God even goes further. Even if these forget, I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He argues with our unbelieving hearts. He doesn't just wash his hands of us. He stays in the conversation and argues us out to persuade us of his love. It's not normal for a mom to forsake her nursing child. But sometimes in the world that happens. But God takes it even further. Even if that happens, he will not forget us. He has inscribed us on the palms of his hands. John Calvin said that that image means that God would sooner forget who he is than forget us. That's how close we are to his heart. You want this love. You want this kind of leader. Why would we trust our own little sophisticated five-year-old hearts when we keep saying exactly what we don't want, right? Let's le let him lead us as our compassionate shepherd all the way to glory. The third reason why Jesus will not disappoint us is found at the end of the chapter in verse 24. And he gives another earthly illustration there. But Jesus is the conquering savior. Jesus is the compassionate shepherd. Now he's the conquering savior. The earthly illustration is he asks a question. Can the prey, the one sought after, be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? Normal answer, no. That's not the normal way the word, world works. The strongest man wins. So God takes 
out the strong man. This is what Christmas is all about. A strong, oppressive tyrant ruled this earth. Satan is his name. Adam rolled out the red carpet, which we talked about last week, for him to oppress the world with sin and death, being partners in that oppression. And God says, enough. No more. He picks a fight with him. How? Through that baby in Bethlehem. And I love the warrior resolve in God. Look in verse 25 at the bottom part. I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your children. Jesus has taken down the strong man, the one who was given limited reign here on earth to wreak havoc. He has entered the earth and taken him down. The oppressor has been overcome. Now imagine Jesus just kind of pulling his children behind him, saying, get behind me. And he, he stares at sin, he stares at Satan, he stares at death, and he grabs them by the neck, and he runs them into the wall, and he says, no more. He's scrappy when people bother his children. He's real scrappy. I went to the hospital this week four times just because one of the families in our church is, is having a rough week, and... Uh, just looking out at Children's Hospital, I can't wait for that day. No one is stronger than him to undo what he has done. And he came, 1 John 3, to destroy the works of the devil. And he's coming again to finish the job, church. You want a king like this, he is kind enough to carry you. So you can come to him when you're weak. But he's strong enough to save you. He's a lamb to you, but a lion to your enemies. That's what Jonathan Edwards says. And friends, he, he gave this image of closing with Christ. If you don't know Christ this morning, I would encourage you to close with him. That's what the Puritan said. And what it means is you forsake all others. You stop saying exactly what we don't want, and you embrace Jesus for all he is in you because he will not disappoint. He is exactly what you need, and he's even what you want. Paul used one word to describe him in Ephesians 3. The incalculable riches of Christ is how he described his gospel ministry to get the, the news out to the world. And that's it, incalculable riches of Christ. What that means is however good you know Jesus to be right now, he's better still. However sweet you've tasted him to be, he's sweeter still. It's incalculable. It'll be from age to age. We will keep saying the same refrain, worthy, which means Exactly what we want. So Brook Hills, we've got to finish up. <laughs> so Brook Hills, one mediator God has provided. Praise him for that. He wants to be glorified this Christmas season because he provided a mediator. But that means we have one mission. And number one there under So Brook Hills, his light is too bright for the nations to still be in the dark. His light is too bright for the nations to still be in the dark. God said it. It's not enough for just one. It's not enough for us, church at Brook Hills. More got to get in. More. He's hitting the share button over and over and over. Billions of people who still live in darkness have yet to hear the gospel in our world today. They have yet to hear of the infinite worth of Jesus. So the population of our world is nearing 8 billion and neither... Uh, Right past one-third and between one-half of all those people 
still live in what we call least reached areas. That means that not only are they in the dark and without Christ, but, but they still don't have access to the light. So the people in Birmingham have access to the light. Your neighbors have access to light. So they might not be Christians and they might still be in the dark, but light is nearby. It's you and me. But these people in the least reached areas have no light nearby. No church, no Bible oftentimes, no when some of them are even no one on the way to bring the light. We just learned back in October that in the Stans, you know, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, think of that area of the world, there are 167 people groups, ethnic entities, that have yet to hear the gospel and have yet to have access to the gospel, and no one is on the way currently to take them the gospel. And this past year, they went down from 168 to 167. One people group was marked off because someone took the light to them. You know how long that step took? It took 10 years. It's going to be a long haul to get the light to them. But what does it look like to live in the darkness? It looks like my friend Turgai. Back in 2014, we took our first stateside from Turkey, and we were going to be gone for four months. And we learned right before we left that his wife was very sick with cancer. And so we weren't able to meet her before we left, but we prayed for her with him that she would be healed and be saved. And the day we returned, four months later, I was anxious to hear how she was doing. So Owen and I went to the market and we passed by the restaurant where he works. And I see him and I immediately embrace him and we're, we're shaking hands. And I ask, first question, how's your wife? And I will never forget what he did. So he's holding my hand there and he looks up to heaven beyond my, my head and he prays a prayer. He says, God, Allah, would you forgive her of her sins? And I walked away from that conversation, and Owen, my son, was holding my hand. We were going to the market, and my knees just buckled. I wanted to just fall. I didn't fall right then, but it felt like I needed to. And he said, what's wrong, Dad? And I realized I had heard a sinner's prayer call for forgiveness that I knew would not be answered. Her husband was not her mediator. There's one mediator. That's the reality for people that live in the darkness. And some of us are trusting in things that might mitigate this tension between you and God. Your own works you might be trusting in this morning. They won't mediate. Jesus alone is our only mediator. But it doesn't have to be that way. Friends, the darkness is losing to the light. The growth of the global church is just astounding to watch. Bob, one of our global team members, just went to Vietnam back in November, and he went up the mountain to this secluded people group, one of the highest elevations in all of Vietnam. And years ago, the Communist Party had delivered a shortwave radio to this community so that they could get their propaganda out. So they turned the dial and start hearing the gospel. <laughs> 12 years ago in 2007, 90% of the community was addicted to opium. And it was the main source of income for the community. And little by little, they started hearing the word of God. One person said that they would shoot up on the way and then leave and shoot up on the, when they returned home. That's how addicted they were. But God's light prevailed. They came out of the darkness and into the light. And 12 years later, 90% of the community is Christian and no drugs remain. And they share the Father's impulse, this exuding joy over the accomplishment of Jesus. And so what have they done? How can we reach the cities, not in our area, but in Vietnam? Well, let's send taxi cab drivers into the cities because they have a captive audience. 
So this is their, their design to get the light into these other cities that have yet to be reached. And they're sending out taxi cab drivers down the hill to reach the cities. The darkness is no match for God's light. Let us let our light shine. And that means proclaiming the gospel. Secondly, his cause is too grand to live small. His cause is too grand to live small. Jesus is simply the best thing that's ever happened to the universe. We agree with God. It's, it's too small to save one, he says. But that changes the way that we think about our lives here. We can live so small. We can be raisins. You know what a raisin is? It's a dried up version of its former self that really shrunk down, right? That's what we can be. We can, be, we can have all this stuff, but we're inside, we're raisins. It's all centered on us, small and shriveled little desires. Smallness shows up in multiple ways, but listen to the voice of your ambitions. What do you want out of your life? Your pursuits pr reveal what you prize. Young men, I just want to encourage you in this room. 13 out of the last 14 midtermers we've sent have been women. And we celebrate that. Praise God for those young women who see Jesus as too big to live small. But brothers, where are you? It's too small to just merely get a good career, get married, get a good house, have some good kids, and live with earthly comfort. America has a great dream for you, and it's all about comfort now. But it's so small. So small. Live big. What about your finances? Do they encompass the bigness of God's plan, or the worth of Jesus' accomplishment? Or are they just putting more wrinkles on your heart? I remember one mission speaker challenging us with, are we more invested in equity or eternity? It was so convicting. Where are we more invested? The global offering is one channel by which to expand the soul, to get plump. God wants us to be plump. <laughs> in this sense, be large-hearted for the nations. Our earthly riches are to be stewarded so that others might get on in on the eternal riches that are found. In Christ. Listen to your prayers. Are they big or are they small? Are they world embracing? That magnet is there to help you expand your prayers. All of us play our part. Some of us need to go. All of us can give. All of us can pray. The bigness of the gospel. Let it resonate within us. Let it echo and reverberate among us. Let the gospel have its expansive effect. Lastly, Earthly woes will give way to heavenly wows. So Brooke Hills, earthly woes will give way to heavenly wows. This pa passage points us to the future city of God that Jesus is taking us to. And earthly woes are eclipsed by heavenly wows. Verse 21, take the earthly woe of barrenness and childlessness. The exile was so lonely. No future. And what do they say with their own mouth? Wait a minute. Where, where, where did that kid come from? Who fathered that kid? Where, who brought him up? And all the nations are streaming in. You can imagine like the receiving line of glory. And they're like, wait, wait a minute. You're here? He came and got you too, right? Somebody's going to say that about all of you. Somebody's going to say that about me. What? He got in. Look, praise Jesus, right? His light is that bright. It's, it's going to be unimaginably large. Surprises are just going to just be everywhere. Verse 20, the earthly woe of exile and destruction, life on the run. Think about life on the run. 
But what do the children say in verse 20? Man, this place is too small for me. Make room for me. They're no longer saying exactly what we don't want. They're saying, I got to stay here. They found a home. Make room. The wow of a heavenly home will just shock our systems. The earthly woe of oppressors are even going to be undone. Verse 23, kings will be your guardians. Queens, your nursing mothers. What is a nursing mother but one who's right there to answer your every need. That's what, that's what these people that set themselves up to be obstacles to God's purposes are actually going to serve God's purposes in the end. I mean, think of that immigration officer in Malaysia that told Chad, you can't come back. <laughs> it only opened a door for the Sunda to hear the gospel in Indonesia. <laughs> the table-turning effects of God's grace are already underway. Our bold hope in his promises will not fall flat. Then you will know, he says, that I am the Lord. Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Jesus refuses to disappoint. There's one word that you will never hear in heaven from those who know Jesus. It's regret. It's not the language of glory. Worthy is the language of glory. Paul said it this way, he considered the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Heavenly wiles will eclipse earthly woes. And we will say with all the nations for all eternity, exactly what we wanted, exactly what we needed. Jesus, he is enough. Let's sing to him.